Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy family. If you have your Bible, go ahead and get over to Luke chapter 1. Y'all, the year 2020 is almost over. (laughs) I think in some way or another, most of us are kind of glad about that. We're kind of glad to see 2020 in the rear view at some point. And there's something that we do here as a church at the end of every year, whether a good year or a bad year, we have this intentional rhythm that we orient our focus onto the hope of the arrival of Jesus Christ. We call this season Advent. That's the Latin word for arrival. It's been used for centuries as the name for the Christian celebration of Christmas. Our sermons and our worship services focus on the arrival of Christ and why it matters so much for us right now. Uh, Normally, we wait till it's usually like the Sunday after Thanksgiving that we get into it, but I just kind of believe we need an extended dosage of hope this year. Um, And our Advent theme this year is the promise that comes with the arrival of Jesus. Our theme, every message is pointing to the next six, seven weeks together. What you're going to hear is simply hope is here. Hope is here. Hope is here in 2020. The arrival of Jesus isn't an ancient story designed to just generate some warm fuzzies for you. It is a message that brings hope right now to you and I. Over the next few weeks, we're talking about a current hope. All right, as we get into it, we're going to have some stuff. If you're new with Mercy, this is a great time for you to jump in and get to know Mercy Church. We're going to have some resources that will be coming out over the course of the series, things like an advent calendar for you to do with your family. We're going to have a Christmas missions offering where we give together to spreading this hope around the world. All that stuff's coming. But today we're going to open up in Luke 1. We're going to start in verse 5 and we're going to walk through Luke's account. And y'all, it is packed with hope. We're going to see hope interrupt some lives. We're going to see hope redeeming lives, hope filling up hearts of faith that were once dead, Hope that has no boundaries, that changes the hearts of kings and shepherds, saints and sinners. And what makes Christmas so powerful is that, again, the hope that it brings is current. It has the same force and effect that it did 2,000 years ago. And maybe, maybe the power of Christmas for you will be receiving Christmas not as some general season of hope for the you know, public at large, but instead you receiving it as a specific source of real hope for you this year, for your situation, for your family, hope is here. Luke begins with God delivering hope to two people who have a very tired prayer that they used to pray and stop praying. The kind of prayer that they prayed a lot, 
And then the prayer never saw the prayer answered. So they just kind of put it over in the, that's never going to happen. Might as well stop praying about it category. Got any prayers like that? Back in March, um, my kids began praying as we were around the dinner table together. Each one of them, whenever it was their night to pray for our meal or, or bedtime, they would pray for God to take away the coronavirus daily. Y'all, nine months is a long time for elementary age kids to pray for something. It's a long time for any of us to pray for something. And in my heart, man, as I'm trying to be their dad, I'm like, Lord, come on. I don't want them to get tired of praying. I don't want them to stop. I don't want them to get jaded and not believe in your power anymore. I don't want their circumstances they see and feel to cause them to lose hope in the unseen God. And I wonder if some of you are in that same boat where you stop praying because you felt like based on your circumstances, either not getting better or just not changing, or maybe they got worse, maybe God wasn't listening. So you lost hope. And then it started to hurt to hope. And so to protect yourself from hurt, you stopped hoping. Today, as we open the Christmas account, we open it in two people who seem to have been in that spot. One of whom, ironically enough, was a priest. And in bringing a long-awaited answer to these two people, we're going to see God provide a living hope that is powerful enough to carry you and your tired prayers. We're going to walk through Luke 1, 5 through 25. I'm going to walk you through the situation. We're going to see God at work. And after walking through it, we're going to zoom out, take just a few minutes, and I'm going to show you why we lose hope. Like What happens that causes us to shelve those prayers to stop really believing in an all-powerful God, even though we might say it, stop really believing and walking like it, and then how we can have sustaining hope. All right, but let's just walk through this and see all that God has for us. You ready? Verse 5. Here we go. Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of, I'm going to say, Abahaz division, but I'm not really sure on it yet, okay? I'm not sure how that J is pronounced. Named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. All right. A few characters here. They're going to be in our story over the next few weeks. King Herod's going to be a looming figure. He's the puppet king over Judea. Rome is in charge, but Herod's allowed to be called king because he's pretty shrewd. He was pretty harsh. Uh, always made sure Rome got paid, right, and how he handled Uh, and dealt with Judea. He's going to come up a lot. And then you have Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're our main characters today. They're an older married couple, think grandparent age. Elizabeth's ancestor, Aaron, is a very important priest in the Old Testament. And actually, Aaron's wife was named Elizabeth. She's even inherited the name. These are two people who should have been given great respect because of their Israelite priestly heritage, which makes them maybe out at the outset a little bit hard to relate to. And then on top of that, look at verse 6. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. That doesn't get said a whole lot about people in Scripture. The Bible is pretty real about who people are. Uh, It's rare for the Bible to paint people with such a glowing brush. They're not only Israelite by blood, but they lived like God's people should live like Noah and Abraham. They lived with integrity and faith. They were the model of obedience to God, which makes them even harder to relate to, we think, until verse 7. 
But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Now, what we know from Psalm 127, verse 3, something these two would have surely known. I mean, old Z was a priest. He knew God's word. Elizabeth is a descendant of priests and had been taught God's word. They knew Psalm 127, 3 says that children are a blessing from the Lord, offspring a reward. And here they are, God's people by birth, by career, and by lifestyle, model um, of God's people and who they should be. They honored God, and yet... God had withheld the blessing that was regarded in this day and age to be the greatest blessing God could give a couple. And in fact, if he didn't give you children, it might mean that you were somehow disobedient from him. So the general public would think, the general public might think maybe there's something wrong with you. And I wonder if any of y'all can relate to that. I mean, specifically in the Christian community, when it comes to marriage and family, when you don't follow the unspoken life path of getting married and having children at certain times, you can kind of feel the eyes of the community around you saying, I wonder what's wrong with him or her. Can you relate? All of a sudden, Zechariah and Elizabeth start to become very relatable to us, the reader. And then verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, I'm going to set up verse 9 for you right here, okay? Listen, this division on duty, there were 24 divisions. Every priest would be on duty for major holidays, and then they would divide up and each take two weeks, all right, where they serve. So this is one of Zechariah's two weeks where his division's been called up. Some say up to a thousand priests were in each division, All right, Uh, because what was going to happen is you would all be called up, and in the period of just a few hours, your crew, your division would slaughter about a thousand animals as a sacrifice. All right, and I'm telling you all of that that whole uh, there's 24 divisions, there's a thousand people in each division. So Zechariah is one of a thousand that happens to be on duty. This is one of his two weeks, and that's so that the next verse can stand out to you like it should. Verse 9 It happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. All right. It happened that he was chosen by lot. One of the Bible's favorite literary tools is irony, right? The casting of lots, someone like rolling the dice. You think it was chance that he was the one chosen by chance? Of course not. In fact, only priests who had never gone in and burned incense before were eligible to be chosen. So here you have a guy whose number has not been called for years. Like he's gone through this and it's never been his turn. He's been waiting, which is also his personal life story, right? So his professional life story, number's never been called. Personal life story, been praying and praying and praying to have a child, never had a child. Waiting on God, it's been his life. Younger guys keep getting their names called, selected by chance. But then on this day, his name is called, Such a cool setup to go into verse 10. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. An angel has showed up. That's a big deal. All right, we're going to see that a lot in Luke 1 and 2. This is a sign. Some things are happening. And the fact that he shows up on the right side of the altar, that's the earthly equivalent of the right hand of the throne of God. This is a place of very important authority. Verse 12 When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Of course he's terrified. A giant warrior of light has shown up. 
That is not a normal experience. Nothing can prepare you for this. A holy angel has just appeared in the holy temple during a holy ritual, and this priest is terrified. He's humbled because he knows that even though he's tried to live a holy life, he is unworthy of the pure holiness of God. He knows the stories of angels appearing to Gideon and Daniel in the Old Testament, and he certainly doesn't think he's worthy of such status as those guys. So he doesn't really know what to think. Only that finally he's, he's in the temple, and he has never heard of this kind of encounter happening to any other guys in his division or any of the other divisions. So he's confused, he's afraid. And then verse, th- verse 13, excuse me, the angel says to him, don't be afraid, which is what angels like always say usually when they show up bringing good news, like, it's okay, you're not going to die, all right? Don't be afraid, Zechariah, because, man, your prayer has been heard. (laughs) Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you'll name him John. I want you to take that in for a second. Your prayer has been heard. And and I, I was reading through this, asking a question, which prayer? This is what's so cool. God's answering two prayers at the same time. You see, Zechariah's prayer, the reason he was in the room was his sort of, we could call it his professional prayer, the prayer he's making as a priest on behalf of the people, which is a prayer for God. This is what they kept praying. They've been praying years and years, centuries, for God to send a messianic redeemer to come and save Israel. That's what he's in the temple praying. Is this the prayer that God heard? Yes, but he's also heard another prayer too. It's the one that Zechariah is very, his very personal, tired prayer for a child. The one that he was praying by his bedside. And now here in the temple, God is answering this priest's prayer, but also this man's tired prayer with the same answer. In God's timing, the son that he will give to Zechariah will be bound together in the work of the Messiah himself. The name John means God is gracious. This is the announcement of the arrival of the character you might know from scripture or from stories as John the Baptist. And listen to what the angel says about him, verse 14. There will be joy and delight for you. For you, Zechariah. I've heard your prayer. And many will rejoice at his birth. Of course they will. He's a miracle baby born to an old couple in response to old prayers. Verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even while still in his mother's womb. That's not normal either. We're going to see in a couple of weeks. Uh, What we're going to see is in utero, John leap with excitement when in the presence of in utero, Jesus He was created, this baby was created by God to celebrate Jesus. And before he's even born, he's already doing it. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him. He, John, will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. There's so much here. Elijah, that name there was a prophet in the Old Testament. A prophet's job 
was to turn rebellious Israel, and it happened time and time again, return those people back to their God. Nobody did that in a more prominent way than Elijah up on Mount Carmel with his huge showdown where he goes up alone against 450 prophets of Baal. And after showing how impotent Baal was and how powerful the one true God was, he struck down all 450 prophets. Israel turns back and worships the Lord. That dude had the spirit of God with him. And this angel is saying that same spirit with that same power that Elijah had, the power to call down fire from heaven, that's what John's going to have. Zechariah, you have no idea how I'm answering your prayer. You were not ready for the answer I'm giving you. In fact, look at it, verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Uh, First of all, I just want to applaud him for knowing, even in this moment, that you don't call your wife old, right? In fact, he made it like she's achieved something. Like she is well along in years. She's done a great job accumulating years or something like that. I don't know, right? Um, And I will say, if if you're a Bible reader, you might even feel like you've already heard this. Like, haven't I heard the script somewhere? Yeah, this conversation's very similar to one that Abraham had with God way back in Genesis 17, right? He was 99. His wife was well along in years, Sarah, right? And God says, you're going to have a kid. God himself appears. You're going to have a kid. And Abraham laughs and says, how can this be? Because we're old. And God says, it'll happen because I'm God and I'm going to make it happen. Zechariah, of course, knew that story. Remember, he's a priest. Not only did a general Israelite population know the stories of Abraham for sure, but Zechariah had taught these stories. And yet he still cannot believe because his present circumstances seem like that would be impossible. So he voices his unbelief. And the angel answers him, verse 19, I'm Gabriel. (laughs) That I am Gabriel. There's a hint there to to Moses and God saying how, when Moses questions God, God says, I am. There's a hint there. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now, listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zechariah is silenced by God. And I kept asking myself in studying, why? I mean, God didn't silence Abraham when Abraham questioned God. In just a few verses, the same angel appears to Mary and says, she's going to have a miracle baby. And the Virgin Mary responds, how can this be? God doesn't discipline her. So is Zechariah just catching God on a bad day? No, 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 no. Something very, very important, I think, is being revealed here. And that is that God is not as interested in the words you say as he is interested in the heart behind those words. God sees through Zechariah's words to his unbelief. And he sees in Mary's words belief because he looks at the heart. And when he looks at Zechariah's heart, he sees skepticism. He sees unbelief. He sees a guy who has let time and circumstances erode his belief in the God that he serves as a priest for. He publicly professes belief in God. 
So in irony, since his role as a priest is speaking on behalf of God to people, God's going to shut him up. But in God's grace, he doesn't pull away his promise. He still fulfills his promise to Zechariah. The Lord, listen, Hebrews 12, the Lord disciplines the one he loves to draw him back to himself. That's what's happening with Zechariah. This is actually kindness of the Lord. Look at verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed he had stayed so long in the sanctuary. They normally don't go in there a long time. When he did come out, he couldn't speak to him. And then they realized he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. I mean, you can imagine the scene. When the days of his ministry were completed, his week had been up, he went back home. And then we get just this beautiful quick word about Elizabeth. We're going to see her a lot more in two weeks. She's going to uh, take up a lot more of the, the text and the scene. But look at this. I love it. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for about five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Um, why hide herself for five months? I read one scholar from the 1500s who said it was so that she could, it was a way of proclaiming God's grace with power because sometimes when the works of God show themselves gradually, we take less notice of them. Like when, you're, uh, when you have a middle schooler who's in your house every day, you don't notice how they keep getting taller and taller and taller right? But when a friend who lives far away comes and visits for the first time in a year, they're like, whoa, the kid's huge, right? And it might be that Elizabeth wants to like really reveal and celebrate the faithfulness of God, maybe. But I think regardless of her motive, Luke really is drawing us to her words in verse 25. His gift to Elizabeth is to take away the disgrace people had given her. Look, she was not disgraced before God. This is big. She was holy and upright before the Lord. She was suffering no loss in the kingdom of heaven. But something is different in these days. It looked with favor in these days. She has been, in God's kindness, grafted into the story of the coming of Jesus. And God has blessed her with a child as a part of that. And she, just like her child, will not find her identity in the child, but in the Savior that her son is coming to prepare the way for. And at the start of Advent, the celebration of hope being here. I want you to see two things. I want you to see why we lose hope in God and his promises and then how to find it again. I think that's what we see as we zoom out and we kind of look at what we should learn, what we should pull away from Zechariah's story, especially. Listen, first, let me show you why we lose hope in God and his promises, because we got to deal with that if we're going to actually find sustaining hope. One way I see it is, and I see it in Zechariah, is that we demand evidence from a God who doesn't owe it to us. And that's why we lose hope. It's very possible to demand too much evidence from God before we're willing to trust him. A lot of us do that. Zechariah wasn't like Mary or Abraham, who, whose belief, they believed, and that caused them to, to eagerly want to lean in and learn more. His questioning was one that demanded, tell me if you can relate to this, demanded God to prove himself before he would trust God. I think it's something a lot of us do. 
We comb for answers and answers and explanations, and we refuse to fully trust God with our lives until we can get God to write it in the clouds, deliver some sort of undeniable sign. I'll never forget, um, I heard the story of a, a preacher named David Jeremiah. He was telling the story of a couple who was struggling with the idea of uh, tithing, uh, giving their money to the ministry and to, to the advancement of the gospel, that sort of thing. And they weren't sure if they did that, if they were going to be able to get by without that 10%, if they were going to give that over. So David Jeremiah, they're sitting in his office and he looks across the desk and says, all right, what if you just write out your whatever that is that you're going to give, put that in an envelope and I'm going to put it right here in my desk drawer and I'm going to keep it right there. I won't touch it. All right. You come back to me at the end of the month. It'll be right here. And you can let me know if you've made it and you still want me to, at that time, we can put it in. And they're like, oh, that sounds great. That would really man, that really make us feel comfortable. And he looks back at them and goes, really? Are you going to put more trust in me, a sinful pastor, than in God himself? Y'all, we want to hold on to any sense of control that we can have until God gives us some kind of absolute proof that we can trust him. And God says, that's not how it works. You got to trust me. The proof that you need is already found in the empty tomb. Like the fact that Jesus died and then got out of the grave three days later and is alive still now, that is the proof that you can trust me. Now I will say next week, you're going to see as we look at Mary's story, um, you're going to see that it is acceptable to humbly seek explanation. But there's a giant difference between arrogant skepticism and humbly seeking explanation. And it all goes back to the heart, to what's going on down in the heart. Listen, that's, that's one reason is this overwhelming need to get more and more evidence, truthfully, that'll never satisfy us because what we're afraid to do is actually trust God. But another reason we lose hope in God is that we let our hope be determined, dictated by our circumstances. And y'all, this is a hard one, but I have to, I have to tell you this. I'm not saying that circumstances aren't real. I'm not saying that sometimes they are very painful. And sometimes they're very painful that last for a really long time. By the way, first off, that's why you need to share your life with other Christians. You need some people who can remind you of God's hope in those hard moments. But listen, Zechariah's prayer had not been answered. And so he managed to get to a place where publicly he served God, but privately he doubted him. Let me talk to ministry leaders for a second, to pastors who might be listening. Is it possible you've fallen into that spot where because your personal circumstances haven't changed or maybe they got worse, publicly you still put on the face, but privately you have lost hope in God. Y'all, in a broken and fallen world, we cannot put the kind of hope, hope that is reserved for God himself, we can't put that kind of hope into our circumstances but it's so easy to. If we do though, we're going to end up looking no different than the world around us. We'll have nothing that we call the world to because when life is good, we'll be good. And when life is bad, we'll be a wreck. Let your hope rest on something solid and unchanging so that even when life washes over you, crushes you, your hope will still be secure. Let your hope be in God and in his promises. That's good. That's what I'm going to get to how to, to hope again. You got to remember that he's given you his Holy Spirit, meaning that he is here 
with you now. He has sealed, according to Ephesians 1, he has sealed you with his spirit until the day of your redemption. That means you are his. You are his. Heaven is real. One day you'll be there with him. I mean, you think about it. I, I know those really hard prayers. I have prayed some of those really hard prayers that someone I love, I'm praying for them to live and they die. And that feels very final. And then I remember that if they were in Christ, my hope right now is that they are in the best place they can possibly be. And so my hope is still secure. And my hope is in 1 Thessalonians 4, that one day I'll see them again. That is hope that the world does not have. I heard a story yesterday about a teenager, 16 years old. She placed her faith in Christ. She was with her dad at like a, um, just an, a Christian event where they presented the gospel. It's kind of a worship gathering, sort of worship night kind of thing. And they presented the gospel and they said, you know what I want you to do, the guy who's up there preaching, he said, I want you to turn to somebody, uh, the person beside you and ask them, are you sure, are you sure that if today was your day, that your number was called, that, that you died today, that you would be with Christ in heaven? You're that sure of your salvation. And so uh, the dad is with his daughter. And so he looks at his 16 year old daughter and says, are you sure? And she says back to him, are you sure? And they're both like, yes, we know Christ. We're sure of he said, it was a sweet moment. He said, and then by noon the next day, she had died. Tragic car accident kind of thing. And her parents are telling this story that I'm hearing yesterday. Y'all, I don't know any darker spot in this world than that, losing a child. And they had a bright light about them and were calling the people there to believe and rest their hope in something that was unchanging, that they could hold on to even as the waves overwhelmed their life, they could hope. They had that hope unchanging. Do you have that hope unchanging? In fact, that leads me right to how do you hope again? How do you hope again? First, look, I told you we got an extended Advent season. This is what I'm going to call you to the whole time. Decide to hope in Christ this Christmas. We're extending this season so that you can have some time to do what you got to do to work through hope. It might take some time for you to build back up your hope muscles, but you can have hope. And it begins by fixing your eyes on Jesus, by spending more time worshiping and exalting him in your heart and in your life focusing more on him than you do on the situations around you, choosing where you need to wait on him, choosing to wait on him with hope that even if he doesn't give you the child, and I know you can hear this story and you can think, yeah, I can't stand these kind of stories. I've heard you tell me this, so I know it. I can't stand these stories because in the end they get the child. So I can't relate to it. Look, that comment right there is exactly what circumstantial hope says. Eternal hope says If God should give it, I'll receive it. But even if not, the giver is still better. He is still better. And I have all I need in him. Life isn't the Hallmark movie channel, all right? Maybe we should make a commitment to stop watching that this time around. I don't know. Especially because Spencer's always like the bad guy and always winds up being the jerk in the movies. But that's another thing. But look... This is real life, and in real life, life circumstances are hard. But there is a promised 
hope in Christ in hard, especially in, in fact, we glorify him all the more in the middle of hard circumstances. There's a guy, a pastor in 1865 named Edward Moat, British guy who wrote a song called My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. It's one of these songs that made their way into the Baptist hymnal that I had uh, growing up. It said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, which would mean the, the good circumstances, but instead wholly lean on Jesus' name. Yeah, I dare not trust. I love it. I love the theology packed into that simple verses. I dare not trust the good circumstances. He's channeling what Paul says. I've learned to be content in times of plenty and in times of want, right? I'm not going to trust in the good circumstances, right? Because on Christ, the solid rock, I stand all other ground, the good and the bad, the prayers answered and the blessings withheld. All of that can be sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Press into the hope of Christ this Christmas. Ultimately, that's where Zechariah and Elizabeth's hope, it wasn't answered in their son, but in the one their son was sent to proclaim. Draw your heart to Christ during this season. Start reading and pouring over Luke 1 and 2. Get your family in there. Start journaling and praying, God, I want to hope in you. Don't let my hope is so easily, so it's like a magnet that is turned towards circumstances, towards the sweetest frame. If that would just get better, I would be okay. No, you won't. It is sinking sand. Turn, man. I'll tell you a prayer God loves to answer. God, I want to hope in you. He loves to answer that prayer. He will meet you there with the peace that passes understanding that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Get around some other believers. Get in a, this is why we push you to get into a community group, whatever it is, however you do it, get around where you can be encouraged and you can exhort and encourage other believers in the hope of Christ. Because that hope is not just a warm, fuzzy story from a long time ago. It is current. It is right now. Because we believe Jesus got out of the grave, because we believe he resurrected, he rose up to the throne. He sent his Holy Spirit who is living and active with us. His word is living and active and is meant to teach us, to rebuke us, correct us, training, training us in all righteousness. Y'all, that hope is current. And here's the last one, or the other one, how we hope. I just want to encourage you, don't despair. Repent and press on in faith. Zechariah's unbelief, it reminds me of Peter's, right? It's a temporary lapse, not a whole way of, of life. He doesn't go on in it. And thanks be to God that while we may have to endure some discipline because of our unbelief, God does not cast us away. And in fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to see Zechariah's hope was strengthened more than ever before through this discipline that God brought him. God brought him to a place where he had to be quiet before him, where he couldn't use his words to conjure up any of whatever excuses for why things were the way they were. He had to sit and watch the Lord work, and he comes out of it praising God. 
the Lord will bless your belief in him. Maybe he will answer your prayer. Maybe you need to pick that prayer up, dust it off and keep praying. Maybe, he, maybe even when you do, he'll withhold the answer the way you have it. But as you trust him, he will change you. He will strengthen you. You will begin to find peace and hope, not in the circumstances, but in him. And instead of just trying to hope enough to get by, you will start to overflow with hope. And you'll become a beacon of hope that will call others to that very hope in Christ. What if that was mercy's testimony to Charlotte this Christmas? Was there so much hope here in the midst of a lot of uncertainty that's in our community and in our world at large? But man, there is a ton of certain hope over at Mercy Church. Come and find hope because hope really is here. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our faith in you. I pray for um, eyes to see in full as we study your word. Would we see in full all that you have for us in Christ? I pray for belief and I pray help our unbelief. Help us to marvel and wonder and be in awe at the miracle of the incarnation of Christ, at all the things that you have woven together in order to um, bring your son, the savior of the world. God, it's such a, it's a, it's your sovereignty at work. And we get just a little bit of a peek into it with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John. And so we praise you for it. You indeed are gracious. You are good. God, I pray for the, the family, for the individual who is really just struggling to believe. God, I pray that they would hear, do not despair. Do not despair. Turn from unbelief and press on, knowing that their father loves them, loves to give them good gifts, but that you yourself are the, can sound cliche, and I pray that that the truth would bust through the cliche wall and land in their hearts. You are the greatest gift. Your presence with them and the life that you give them, life that you make them into a new creation and they have life everlasting with you. I pray that that would bust through the walls of their hearts and would they hope again. Thank you, Father, that hope is here. We celebrate you in Christ's name. Amen.